Welcome to the Wizards of Dabs podcast, where we interview the creators of various decentralized applications in the Web3 ecosystem. We learn about how they are built and the insights that come from shipping. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Peter. And I'm Bethany. Hi, everyone. Today, we'll be joined by Orson Griffith, uh, the creator of Burner Wallet and director of research at Gitcoin Labs. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a while since I kind of met you, right? Like I met you last year, I first time in ETH San Francisco, right? And um, that was the time when we started playing around with meta transactions, right? Yep, meta transactions were uh, like a pretty big part of my life back then, and we were trying to figure <laughs> right. out how to, you know, create gas abstractions. And I guess I mean it kind of goes back to I built some games and no one would come play them. And it was like, well, what do we need to get this onboarding? And so like meta transactions were the obvious first step there where we could abstract away gas and we could abstract away the need for ETH and we could let users basically just like participate in a DAP cryptographically backed, but without having a lot of the onboarding challenges. Yeah, I think like last year, user experience being a very big theme within the community, right? I think it was mainly due to, you know, I, the narrative like user experience was, I think, initially like raised up with CryptoKitties, despite that being a scaling problem, scalability problem, right? Where as the network clogged up, right, people figured that and realized that it was completely unsustainable in terms of the end user experience in terms of like network confirmations. And later on, I think there were several other uh, product releases in the community, such as Olga, which really highlighted the need for better user experiences, right? And proper dedication and attention towards the user interaction of dApps. So when did you join the community? Yeah, I, well, I guess technically I joined right around that time. I think basically ETH SF and then into DevCon, I joined Gitcoin as the director of research. Before that, I was kind of just doing these weekly R&D projects, kind of just like shipping on a regular cadence of, of like, hey, check out this cool thing I was thinking about. And then Gitcoin hired me and I kind of can just continue doing that, right? It was like weekly, you know, what, what is counterfactual instantiation? How does the Moloch work? And can we build a little sandbox around it? How does commit reveal work? So there's a lot of just little projects along the way. To hit on what you're talking about there about UX, I, I really think that technology here is really, really fascinating, right? And there's some really complicated things. And I think that when you build something like some of these really fancy, really great dApps, you almost forget about UX a little bit, right? It's so complicated and so complex that you almost don't want to abstract that away from the user. So it almost takes a fresh perspective of someone else coming in being like, well, yes, I get that this is super complicated, but we got to make this easier to use, right? We're just now kind of getting into that where it's kind of like build this really, really awesome thing. And then you're going to notice that you don't have the users you deserve. And then it's like that next step of, have a fresh perspective come in and view it like, you know, and every man would view it and figure out how to make it usable for everyone. Yeah, you're right. Like taking the fresh perspective on the current technology we have and like figuring out how we can use them in like more potent ways and simple ways is I think like one of your core like key strengths and skills, right? Like I remember during DevCon, I think that was when you were still building the burner wallet and you had like this prototype where, you know, you just had xdi.io and I think you had like, there was no styling on the page yet. It was just like this little, in the corner of this web page with no styling. And it was like, it had like one or something in it. And it was, I remember the standing in, during DevCon 
just like explaining this something about the metacartels or someone else. And I see you coming running over and being like, look at this, look at this, check this out. Right. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is this like ephemeral key? You know, I don't, I didn't, I didn't really get it. Right. Um, and I think like until later on when I saw it in a wallet version and then it was actually kind of like used for the first time did like, I kind of really get how potent that simple idea was. And I remember it was just like, Hey, what's so special about it? But actually in fact, you kind of reinvented the idea of how to use ephemeral keys, right? How to even go further in terms of like those onboarding trade-offs between security and um, usability. So I think that's uh, definitely one of the unique like perspectives that you do bring. Yeah. To hit on that, like basically the, you have to experience it, right? When I say right. it's just like this, <laughs> like ephemeral wallet that you can grab stuff and send stuff quickly, you know, it's kind of like, oh, whatever. But when, once you see a circle of people sending funds back and forth quickly, and then, you know, finally off ramping that back to ETH, there's like a magic moment that happens and that you still basically have to do that to get someone to understand what it is. And to hit on the whole security spectrum, I, th I think that it's like, we're, we're finally ready to make some of these trade-offs. And I think that traditionally we've been kind of maximalists about our decentralization and our security. And I think that for small amounts of money, we can make some smaller trade-offs. And, and I think that by navigating that spectrum of security and decentralization uh, a little bit more from the everyman perspective, I think we can start in a little less secure place and a little less decentralized place with something that's a lot easier to onboard. And then as someone uses it and kind of gets you know traction and gets an understanding of the space and gets more motivated to be educated about the space, then we can slowly work them toward a more decentralized and a, and a more secure solution. You almost need to walk with like these different like personas that exist in the web free space, where these different personas embark on different user journeys with different like mental models, right? And you almost have to control, not only control, but maybe almost control the level of uh, optional abstraction. And I don't just say like abstraction, but like I say, I talk about like optional abstraction because while one person, right, or while a user may also care about the data and so what you know, and care about security, they may actually consciously make that trade off. Yeah, sometimes you want to get into it and you want to understand it. Like the, the other day, I, or like yesterday, I was trying to send a transaction on MetaMask and it had just abstracted away gas costs, which is nice. I wanted to I wanted to figure out exactly the perfect thing and send it and not have to do anything at all. Right. But then the, the transaction took like four hours. And it's like, I don't yeah, <laughs> I don't want that. Now it's like this habit where I get in and I look at like, okay, what are gas costs right now? What is it predicting the gas cost will be? And I'm going to go a little higher than that because I want to be safer because I don't want this to take four hours. And so like, if you abstract it away, you've got to damn sure get it right. Or people are going to want to like have more optionality behind getting into those abstractions and understanding them. I think just having the option makes a big difference, especially with key management, right? Like not everyone wants to manage the keys. Some may trust the service. I think just like by having the option, if we could spread the adoption of so like the option of self-managed keys and self-managed data, right? And in the applications of like the day-to-day, -day, that's also a huge step, even if like there's a low adoption rate, the fact that people can have that option. Any different kinds of storing private keys, it's sort of like right now I'm looking at this kind of wallet abstraction where the user can choose between any of the given login schemes, whether it's Fortmatic or Portis or, you know, in any of those, or even putting in a seed phrase or Bitsky is a good example. Like you, you should be able to choose what level of security versus usability you want and kind of pick the one that's best for you. Like maybe you don't care about a slightly custodial situation. Like maybe that's fine for you. 
Right. And I think the whole password recovery mentality is is kind of scary right now because like it doesn't work like that with private keys, but we're starting to move towards contract wallets and social recovery and a lot of really fun things in the space that kind of open up this ability to do some kind of password recovery or at least account recovery if you have the right setup. And I think our project, Eat San Francisco, was like this, right? It was like MetaConnect or something like this. Where basically like you we were using that like quick QR scan that was similar to the burner wallet. And we were using it in a way where you didn't have to have MetaMask or anything like that. You just like pull up a browser and you shoot each other's QR codes and then you're kind of connected, right? And then we were paying the gas to write that on chain, but at the same time, those two people are connected and they're sharing their they're like their business card. But that also creates like this social recovery angle also, which was a really neat thing at the time. I, re- I really enjoyed thinking that. I guess Pedro did all the work, right? We just, uh, we just partied. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Just yeah. Kidding. I, I remember the memes of you, like it was specifically you not sleeping. It went from like 7 a.m. like still haven't slept. 8 a.m. still haven't slept. Yeah. 9 a.m. still haven't slept. <laughs> 10 a.m. so I haven't slept. Then finally, when I went to sleep, finally, when I went and passed out at the Airbnb, it was yeah. like Fleet Week or whatever, right? So there yeah. were like, like freaking like F-16s, like yeah, low F-16s rolling right awesome. over the top of the Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy week. It's been like a really long journey since like at San Francisco. It felt like it feels like a lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. In DevCon, you kind of built this prototype of like um, the Bono Wallet. When do you remember? What was like the first Bono Wallet event like? Do you like maybe share like how that went? Yeah, it was kind of fun. So I think that at DevCon, I kind of got the validation I needed that I should keep working on the Burner Wallet. And at the same time, I got hired by Gitcoin to do R&D. So the Burner Wallet moved to the back burner, if you will. And I started doing a lot of these R&D projects. At the time, we were we were working on the LEAT standard. We were trying to do token subscriptions with meta transactions. You sign one thing, and then it just replays forever, and you use approvals to control it. Like I said, a bunch of different projects. But then after a while, we started talking about maybe we could use this thing at ETH Denver for the food trucks. And we kind of needed to test it out, but we didn't have any place to do that yet. So as we kind of like just cleaned up the burner wallet and made it look more like, like you said, made it look more like a wallet. Basically, I just had a couple bounties on Gitcoin to, you know, clean up the UI and, and help with a few other things. And Maddie, right? Maddie B was one of the first designers. He designed the first interface, right? Shout out. Yep, exactly. So we had this event in Boulder where we were going to have people come in and pay for their beer with crypto. And I kind of showed up, uh, it was my buddy, Brian Ethier, that was putting it on. And I showed up and I said, man, people are going to hate having to give us cash in one room and then use the Bitcoin that they bought in the other room to buy a beer and have to like wait for the block to mine. Like the, the UX here and just like the cognitive, it just wasn't quite right. So what we came up with was, first of all, I showed him the burner wallet. And he's like, oh shit, yeah, we got to use that. That, that, will, that will like help with a lot of this. But then there's still like that cognitive load there where you have to, if you have cash in one room, but then in the other room, you can't use that cash. It's kind of like, it doesn't make sense. So what we did was we set up two rooms. And in the first room where you walked in, it was basically present day. And then as you cross the threshold into the second room, we were saying it was like 2040 or something like that, right? And we were calling it a cypherpunk speakeasy where you could still buy beer with cash, but we had on the chalkboard, 
beer costs like $2 million and a wine costs like, you know, 2.5 million. So we were kind of trying to play on like the inflation, like the future that decentralization was trying to solve. The credit card companies had dissolved and the only thing you could buy your beer with is inflated cash or crypto. So then all of a sudden it kind of helped it make sense, right? So you'd you'd walk in, you'd get a burner wallet, you'd put some some funds on it, and then you'd go in and you could buy your beer with the burner wallet. And so what we learned, we learned like a ton of UX stuff there. Like where do their thumbs go? Where do their eyes go? Where is there a problem? And we took notes. And so once we had those notes, we went back and kind of just had a sprint and just worked on fixing those things within the burner wallet. And then we repeated that for four or five more weeks. I think we did six total weeks of cypherpunk speakeasies until ETH Denver happened. Every week? Yep. Every week for six weeks, we would like go to a bar. We only did cash the first night. And then we realized that paper wallets were the way to go. So we would hand out paper wallets and then people would scan those because that that was basically what was going to happen at ETH Denver. We knew that they would get a solid coin. They would scan it. They would have an instant wallet. They could take that wallet up to the vendor, scan the vendor and buy the food. So we just tried to replicate that experience beforehand, watching for any little issues that would happen and then trying to patch those up and make sure they were all ready. And there were, you know, tons of edge cases we found. We built lots of little services around that to sort of like catch those edge cases and kind of point them back in the right direction. So one thing would be like if we had tokens on a paper wallet and then someone else just created a new wallet because you could just land at xdai.io and create a wallet, right? So what they would do is they would move the tokens from one to the other. And first of all, just like where the thumb was, right? People Like we had the thumb button, the send button was in the top right corner. And it's like, no, we got to get that down closer to the thumb, right? Lots of little things like that. But, it, but an edge case is, what if I gave you 10 tokens and a little bit of XDAI for gas, and then you sent those tokens to a different address? You wouldn't have gas to send the tokens, but... In terms of like UX, that's really bad UX because then all of a sudden, like you can't figure out why your tokens won't move around. So we built a little service that just watches for tokens to move around and we would drop gas to people to make sure they have what they needed. So we would have those just just like little things like that. There are tons of them. Yeah, it would have been cool to even have token representation where you could send if an account wouldn't didn't have gas, right? You would also almost send tokens along with maybe a meta transaction token that would allow them one free meta transaction by relay. Or something that would have been cool as well. Yeah, we barely use relays within the burner. So the only case that we use a relay, and we're using the gas station network, and we actually launched this at ETH Denver also on XDI, but we use the GSN to do link claiming. So, so I can wrap up some funds in a smart contract in escrow and send you a link, right? I can send you a link in chat, or I can show you a QR code. But somehow you basically follow a link to a URL that takes you to a burner wallet. It generates you a new wallet if you don't have one. And since you don't have funds to claim that link, that's where the meta transaction comes in. You sign something, you send it off to a relay network. And thanks to the GSN, it's a decentralized meta transaction relay network, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but you send it to that network, that network puts it in, and it pays for your gas. Just before we go on, would you like to explain what are meta transactions and what is the gas station network? Well, like meta transactions are just it's basically like a normal transaction. You, you want to do some action on chain and you wrap it up like a normal transaction, but instead of signing it and sending it to the Ethereum network and having it get mined like a normal transaction, which you need gas for, which you need gas for and you don't have in this case, you just sign the message and you send that to a relayer. And the relayer takes that signed message and they wrap it up into a full-on normal Ethereum transaction and they put it on chain. 
So they pay the gas, but then that that transaction, that string that you sign goes into a special contract that proves that you signed it cryptographically on chain. It rewards the relayer and then it executes whatever you want it to do. So that could be a bouncer proxy where it's almost like an identity, or that could be native within some coin, right? Like the new version of multi-collateral die is a good example. You will be able to just sign messages that say send 10 die from Austin to Peter, and you will be able to give that to a relayer and it'll go on chain and you'll be able to send die by just signing messages. Now you won't have to have gas, which is really powerful in terms of user experience. And then I think like the GSN, should we give props to them too? Like the Tabuki relayers? With a relayer, I would have something that's listening like a website. And I would send it that signed message and then it would put it on chain. Well, that relayer is a very centralized, you know, it's just a server somewhere in EC2. For a long time in the MediCartel, we were trying to figure out how to kind of game theory incentivize a pool of relayers to be watching a pool of transactions and make sure everything got done correctly. And we were we were thinking about it kind of in an opposite way. Yeah, to make the service more resilient. Yep, exactly. Right. If if your centralized server went down, you need to, for this to continue on. Well, uh, the Yoav Weiss and the gas station network they came up with a really ingenious way to do this, where instead of you putting your transaction into a pool, you would go to a smart contract that has a list of relayers that are staked and could be slashed if they don't perform correctly. And so what you do is you hit the smart contract, you pick one, you send it your meta transaction, and then it sends you back immediately over HTTP the signed valid Ethereum transaction. So you basically get feedback immediately. And you could hit many of these things within the span of a block being mined, and you could get your transaction on chain. And with that immediate feedback, it changes everything, right? Like the game theory, a lot of the game theory goes out. Obviously, there's plenty you know, to still be figured out. But by using this kind of relay registry contract and staking and slashing mechanics, the gas station network really uh, helped us out and came up with a great solution. And it's live today and being used for link sending in the burner wallet and has been since ETH Denver. The gas station will be live soon on mainnet. Very soon, actually, right? Yep. Going from ETH Denver onwards, you recently were at ETH New York as well, right? What do you think the biggest takeaways have been between ETH Denver and ETH New York? And in between, like, what have you learned, right, by doing all these different events and running these different burner wall events in between? ETH Denver was really hard, and we did a lot to prepare for it, but a lot of things could have gone wrong. In a lot of ways, we just got lucky. And for us, it was like putting a man on the moon to make to pull that off in so many, like, Wi-Fi at the food trucks and so many different edge cases that could have gone wrong that didn't, that we got lucky. So then it was kind of like cleaning up stuff and trying to make the code look better because the code is... The code still is pretty gross because I had to hack a lot of stuff together right before ETH Denver just to get everything to work. So it took a lot of work of cleaning up. But then also, you know, I started to realize this is more of like a platform. This is like instant onboarding. You can send and receive. You can hit the request button and set up, you know, you can set up shop with one button, have a pop up POS system. But then there's like this next layer of like, well, well, this is a platform. You could actually have like games and apps built on top of this. So I did emojicoin.exchange. It's like a shitcoin trading game. I was asked to speak at a, a college here in Fort Collins. And I went in and did my whole talk about, you know, UX and onboarding and adoption. But then I handed out these paper wallets that had $5 of emoji coin on it. You could take that emoji coin and you could immediately off ramp it to ETH, right? So I just basically gave everybody $5, but I put like 300 bucks in this contract so they could play this game where 
the prices of these emojis fluctuated and you could buy and sell the, the emojis. The whole point of the thing was they get a paper wallet, they scan it, and they have a game in front of them. There's no app download. There's no seed phrase. There's, there's, it's just instant onboarding into the app and they could tap buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. And they could buy and sell these emojis and earn a profit. And they were kind of incentivized to play the game. And over that 24-hour period that it took them to empty the bank, out of the 50 students that I handed paper wallets to, 80% of them were onboarded immediately. And I think they racked up like 24,000 transactions or something like that. It was crazy. So we're seeing it as more of a platform. You could build apps on top of it. Ethereal, we did a Helena prediction market. So while you were waiting in line for the food trucks, you could participate in a prediction market. At ETH New York, I put emoji coin in, but kind of in a different way where it was just like linked out, kind of like proving that we don't have to like build these things directly into it. They can kind of be private key links. Biggest takeaway from both of those events is if you pay the vendors up front and they're not, not incentivized to kind of go through the UX of the wallet, you're going to have not as good of a time. Basically, you need those tokens that they collect, that the food trucks collect to be either that's how much money they get or that's like the tip they get, right? You could set it up where like they have a minimum amount and you'll definitely pay them this much. But then on top of that, whatever they collect on their burner wallet, you'll pay them some extra bonus amount. And if they're incentivized to have people play ball with the wallet, then everything is going to go super smoothly because it's almost up to the food truck to make sure that like you collect those tokens and the, the user sends it to you. And if they're already prepaid, they kind of like don't give a crap about all that. And they're just like, here's your pizza, get out of here, right? So you have to have those incentive layers or it doesn't work. Yeah, at least it lets you kind of go through the iteration stages, right? I mean, the, the cycles of iteration. What do you think were the most uh, difficult challenges technically in terms of like building the burner wallet and getting, I guess, setting up the burner wallet for like real events? I mean, you talked a lot about like Wi-Fi issues and a lot of these edge cases around the technical operations of getting this burner wallet live, right? Obviously, if it's operating on a blockchain, you need always on internet. And you would get down to the edge of the food trucks and maybe someone for, that doesn't have like a local data plan, they would get out, out on the edge of the Wi-Fi and then they couldn't connect. So the, the ETH Denver guys were dropping extra Wi-Fi nodes outside down by the food trucks. And so that, that leads to something else new, right? Now you've got these network hardware pieces that are laying around that anybody could just plug into. And you're running a wallet over the web, right? So you've got like some maybe some DNS attack vectors and some interesting things where security becomes important. So it's like you you we just kind of duct tape everything together just to get it to work. You're you're forgetting that you, you know, you have to have solid security also. What do you think? Learning, taking an overview and uh, and summarizing your learnings in the last year, right? What do you think Ethereum's largest obstacles are into overcoming poor user experience, right? Because in the last 18 months, since CryptoKitties kind of flooded the network, we've seen layer two scalability. We can scale dApps on the layer two now, right? We've had a lot of the onboarding problems solved as well. Maybe not all of them. And we're yet to see maybe a dApp kind of like eclipse and really utilize all the tools that we do have now, right? But we have overcome many problems to Ethereum UX, right? What do you think still left? That's interesting. Here's a good example. Like if you look at the Argent wallet, they do a great job of onboarding. They're basically like paying for users, transactions. They're making it very smooth. They're not hitting them with a bunch of seed phrase stuff up front. But 
the reason they can do that is because they kind of have civil resistance. They're not allowing just anyone to take the wallet and run with it. They're kind of like slowly letting people in. So that civil resistance, I think, is pretty important. Exactly. And I think even when we talk about things like quadratic voting or harburger taxes or any any of these like really neat kind of economic models that could come out of having smart contracts and programmable money, there's still a lot of need for identity. And I think that a lot of people are attacking identity from the top down. They're trying to create like the end all be all identity solution. And I kind of disagree with that. I think it's more like a bottom up thing, right? Like identity exists within the app itself. Like I have a peepeth identity. And that peepeth identity is like who I am within that small ecosystem. But it's not me overall. I wanted someone to send me $5,000. I'm not going to be like, yo, send it to my peepeth address where, you know, I'm uploading pictures of my pogs. <laughs> that identity is siloed. And so I think we need to just do a better job of like being able to have that like low level bottom up identity and have it be transferable a little bit, but not totally. Absolutely. I think the crazy thing about the DAO experiments that we're seeing so far is that they're enabling a new form of identity that it has never been really seen before. We're starting to ground a lot of these conversations on identity and DAO governance to just simply a list of people, right? Just by having a very ground up approach, here's humanity DAO, right? Or Moloch DAO. And these DAOs are essentially just a list of people. And they needed to do something. They needed to overcome certain requirements to get in. But once they're in, right, you can actually probably trust this list of people a lot more than, you know, potentially random internet strangers or ran a random sign-up list, right? Because you could actually like filter them through this requirement. As for Moloch, it's pledge funds. You would probably trust this list of people who have pledged funds for Moloch a lot more. And what else can you actually do with this list of people or this DAO? Being part of this DAO means uh, being part of this identity. I wonder what you can do with, by grounding a lot of the conversations around identity, just purely a list of people and just qualifying them in very thinly even. Whether that could actually solve many of our identity problems. Humanity is another example. You've got like basically like permissionless extensibility here, right? Like you don't need anybody's permission to be able to say you've got a list from Humanity DAO and you wanted to then use that for some kind of quadratic voting. You don't need permission from the creator of Humanity DAO to create a new smart contract that uses all those addresses and lets you you know, have quadratic voting on top of it. So I think that we will see like these siloed pieces of identity. We'll see like basically narratives kind of build up behind addresses. And that key piece in itself, like that narrative behind that address is identity. And then we'll have these other things that kind of can, without any permission from anybody else, extend that and use that within their own systems and new systems. Yeah, it's crazy because we, we previously talked about this in the community on a very abstract level, but it's actually happening now. We're seeing these like layers of identity come out. And you can technically be part of the Metacarto DAO, Moloch DAO, and humanity DAO, and you have these three overlapping layers, right? Which almost like build up this narrative of what this um, address is. That's insanely interesting. Or even like a game. Right, exactly. Like you can get into a game and you can play a game for a while and you can collect a couple NFTs, but that narrative that that evolves behind that game is, is you, right? And then if someone yeah. wants to get in and they want to play the game against you, they can see your narrative and they can see that like, you know, this isn't an account that was just created. This is a person who's been playing for a while. And, you know, he beat me twice already. So I can trust this kind of like, this is someone that I know, or this is someone that I've at least had dealings with, or someone else has had dealing with. Right. A lot of neat things that can happen that don't even have to be about money moving around, but even just state change and that information. 
you know, its own identity of like playing this game for a while, right? Yep. Going back to the Bono Wallet, where is that right now? Because, you know, Bono Wallet is clearly very, very useful. It's kind of like worked. It's worked in various circumstances. We've deployed it in the real world. You know, we've started to flesh out these edge cases that prevent it from kind of being utilized. And it kind of like works well to a certain extent now. But cramping a business model into this would probably interfere with the product to some extent. And tokenizing it, that probably doesn't really make much sense either. What are your thoughts on like, how we can like fund these important technologies for the like, such as the burner wallet to make them more sustainable. Yeah, there's a few things there. Yeah. I love talking about like monetization behind the burner wallet because it it kind of shed lights also on just ecosystem plays within Ethereum. And more or less we've done a, a good or bad job of funding people sometimes. Like that's that's a tough thing to say. It's it's a tough sell, especially in winter, to to say like, hey, I'm purely an ecosystem play and all boats are rising. Can I please have some money? You know, there's that kind of almost begging angle. And at first I thought like that would be the route, but you know, you quickly shift to, okay, what else can we do? And I think for the burner, it was, it was more like, well, we have this service model right now, right? We can have these events. We can charge a small amount of money to set up a white label wallet for someone. Yeah, We could even build other things for them. But then like the platform kind of opens that up where it's like, yes, okay, the burner wallet is not something that I'm going to directly monetize, but any app or game that I build on top of this kind of instant onboarding scaffolding, that can have value and that can generate revenue. And, and then I can make these games for these engagements kind of going back to the service model where it's like, okay, you're having a thousand person event and it has this theme. You know, if the theme is cypherpunk, let's build like a little cypherpunk game. So they get the wallet, they can buy food and, and exchange tokens and NFTs and kind of that's just built in. But then let's yeah. build like a custom engagement for your participants and build something really cool on top of that. And there's there's room to monetize that. Yeah, there's a lot of like grant programs for like very like deep technical work. But I almost feel like if I want to look at the Ethereum ecosystem holistically, we actually want to like incentivize and help support the discovery and the creation of valuable products, right? Leverages Web 3.0 in unique and interesting ways to solve problems in new ways or even create new experiences for people, right? And this is not necessarily just like about moving things technically forward. This actually involves building products. And I almost feel that we've almost like solved most of the harder usability and user experience problems around onboarding. We're now like at a point, we're at this inflection point where I think the most critical focus of the Ethereum ecosystem is arguably not ETH 2.0. It's not arguably ETH 1X, right? Or even privacy research, none of that actually, or even scalability. I actually think that we have the tools right now to actually build pretty powerful products that leverages Web 3.0, that uses the existing protocols out there, such as Orga and um, Zerox and Maker, right, for example, or even Foam, right, to build really, really uh, high-value products. I feel like unless we kind of like solve this problem of building products that people want, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters unless we build products that are really valuable. We're starting to see the horizons of this like new op- new wave of opportunity where we have the infrastructure come into place. We have layer to scalability to some extent. We have like most of the usability problems solved to a great extent versus say 18 months ago, right? And now we have a growing developer community and we should be all focusing on like figuring out how can we build something really interesting with this technology? We're at this last mile, right, of Web 3.0 where I feel like I mean, the dire, the dire way to look at it is that we either succeed or die on this hill. 
I would say that we still have a lot of things to solve in terms of my mom being able to, sure, you know, yeah. get some ETH locked up into die and then go lend that on compound and or even just get in and play one of my games. Like we have a ways to go there. I think that maybe we're figuring out what the light at the end of the tunnel looks like, but I think we still have a long ways to go. And I think that right. going all the way back to talking about funding, I think that this is almost the same mentality of the top down identity. I think maybe this is more of a bottom up thing where with the burner wallet, we're having a hard time finding funding for like just getting the fundamentals done that don't necessarily like make any money. Right. So we're trying to kind of create like this burner wallet collective where we're doing these service engagements and we're building cool things and we're building cool games and we're doing things that kind of can generate revenue. And then we're, we're sort of siphoning that revenue back to the fundamentals. You almost have to like create these DAOs, these collectives, these group of people that that kind of can generate revenue, kind of bottom up generate revenue, and then use that revenue for the fundamentals and and redirect it to the things that we need that kind of raise all boats. Right. That was kind of a tangent there. Sorry. <laughs> I agree. Like we almost need this tighter iteration uh, loop between infrastructure and use cases and actual products because the infrastructure first kind of like approach lacks like a focus on the end impact, right? If you're only doing, like developing infrastructure and heading infrastructure head first, you're almost like taking two bets at once. You're betting that you're going to create the right infrastructure so that will enable the right type of dApps to come out. And you almost need to discover the value and the end impact with both infrastructure and dApps and use cases hand in hand and iterate and loop through these cycles rather than being like, hey, we're just going to focus on infrastructure. And we're seeing this like burner collective come out like with this very, very interesting tight iteration loop. That's exactly right. Like use cases and dApps potentially built on top of the burner wallet. And then like iteration phase where it reflects and retrospects on how can it be improved. And the infrastructure of the burner wallet, like almost a core burner wallet, is developing not based on just a technocratic process, right? But based on real data and real impact. Early on, I learned in the Ethereum space, for a while, I operated kind of under the radar. Right. And I spent months building a game that's like hand painted and it's a love project. And there's, you know, 50 different contracts that run it and it's so complicated. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then when I released it, like no one gave a shit and no one played it. What we have to do is kind of do these sprints, go heads down, have a hypothesis hedge bets, go after it. And then at the end of a short cycle, come up for air and show people and get some feedback on it. And don't be afraid to throw it away and try something else. And I think that as, as funding in the space, we need to make sure that we allow people to do that. Almost incentivize them for the first piece to say, we're going to give you a small grant if you show that you give a shit and you care and you'll work on something, right? And at the end, you don't have to have anything yet. And it's okay to throw away your work. Like you need to not be married to something that's not going to work, right? So let's let's iterate on stuff. Let's build some stuff. Let's at first just kind of incentivize you to work hard. And then kind of after you've gotten into the space, you've learned about it, you've figured stuff out, then we start, we start talking about actual, you know, value, you know, making that shift to, okay, now you're, you know, this is your hill to die on, like you would say, like now it's time to make a product and make something that actually matters to the ecosystem. Yeah, it's almost like we need a hackers club, right? Like instead of a book club, we need like a monthly or every two weeks. It's kind of like, hey, what you been up to? What did you, what yeah. did you like your stand up, right? Like an ecosystem stand up for that. I feel like that'd be an interesting thing to see, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we have the hackathons, right? And there's so many amazing projects come out of the hackathons in the space. Yeah, agreed. What do you envision like if you're in being like a year from now? 
it's nearly been a year since you kind of like fully dove into the community, right? Of the aim of like, I got to make it to DevCon. <laughs> yep. No matter what. And you're a year long, right? What do you see yourself kind of like working on or doing in, a, in the next year? Well, hopefully there's a lot more iteration. I think that that platform, the burner as a platform, I think that there's a lot of room there now for me to build apps and games on top of that. And I think that it still fits my original mission of onboarding and adoption and usability. Let's create some games that are like super easy for people to use or or maybe some games that sort of explore economic theories or explore how we can use governance to kind of have a little bit of skin in the game, but not millions of dollars of skin in the game, right? Games give us this fun sandbox to play with these new ideas without, yeah. you know, like, Influence I don't think behavior. we should probably have a hamburger taxes on my house here. <laughs> that would suck, right? Yeah. But like, maybe, maybe houses in a game or some kind of real estate in a game. There's this way that we can kind of have skin in the game without losing it all. And we can kind of test these things. And I think that that's one thing that I'd really like to explore is testing both onboarding and adoption and getting getting these games easy enough for my mom to play, but also kind of on the back end, testing some of these really cool kind of edge ideas about economics and radical exchange type stuff. Yeah. And maybe what Preponode can maybe teach something about ourselves that we never knew. Ooh, Yes. The Web3 was in our hearts all along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I appreciate you for coming on today. And yeah, it's been real fun. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed what you listened to and are interested in supporting this podcast, then please follow us on Twitter at Wizard of Daps. The show notes will be on our website. And if you want to continue the conversation, join our Telegram group. All links will be in the episode description. Thanks for listening.